Anthony Joseph is an award-winning Trinidad-born poet, novelist, academic, and musician. He is the author of four poetry collections and three novels. His 2018 novel, Kitsch, was shortlisted for numerous awards, while his newest poetry, Sonnets for Albert, published by Bloomsbury in June 2022, is shortlisted for the Forward Prize for Best Collection. As a musician, he has released eight critically acclaimed albums, performing internationally as the lead vocalist for the Spasm Band. He holds a PhD in creative writing from Goldsmiths University and is a lecturer in creative writing at King's College, London. This was after we had buried my father in the soft earth of the Santa Cruz Valley. That same graveyard on the hill where our whole clan will eventually be replanted. And we swung dirges in the midday. Anthony Joseph, welcome to the creative process. You've just come out with your collection, Sonnets for Albert. I believe you're going to read from The Sweet Yard, just to give listeners a point of entry. So, The Sweet Yard. In Malik, my father swung the frozen maniku by its tail and came grinning into the yard. Its paws were hooks and eyes half closed and cold. When it had been cut and penetrated with green seasoning and scotch bonnet, he lit a fire between three stones and burst cumin and curry in the hot oil of a black iron. It was the year after I had moved to England, and my return that carnival surprised some people in the village. They wondered how I could come back so quick. When people escape to the cold, they don't come back soon, not so soon. We ate the rodent's skin and sucked its flesh from small bones. Even my brother was there, filing away his reservation, wasting faith on our father. Your father is that absent presence throughout your life and your work, and even, we should say, before Sonnets for Albert. And just wondering how you... You know, you have these things, that it's kind of an archaeology, you have these rings, you went back to Trinidad after his funeral, speaking to his other nine children, maybe revisiting the rooms of the buildings he built. So how did these fragments of a life and memory come together in a Sonnet and Song? Oh, for me, no, it's, it's, it's quite, it's a lot going on there because politically, you know, Caribbean lives, the life of Caribbean people is not really documented. You know, and this comes out of my work, sort of uh, doctoral work, doing, doing another book uh, called Kitsch, which was about sort of, a, it was a fictional biography of a Calypso singer who came to England in 1948 on the Windrush. And in trying to piece together his biography, I found that the pieces of his life were in disparate form, that you could hear one story from somebody and then you could read an article somewhere and you could see another mag- magazine article somewhere else. Or you could read the back of an album and get some information, but there was they weren't in one place. It was a fragment. They were fragmented lives. It was a fragmented life. So this idea of a Caribbean life being fragmented kind of is something that I've I've had in my mind for a long time. So when I came to write this collection for my father, I realized that it was the same process. And what I had were, were fragments, especially with him because he wasn't around in a physical sense all the time. So. All I had were little photographs, scattered memories, remembrances, you know, rings. I wanted to put them together as they came to me in fragments to sort of represent that sort of relationship between form and content. So there's the content of the book, which are the poems for him. And the the poems are fragmented. They're, they're, They're not linear. They're little parts of his life and parts of my experience with him. 
and they were kind of as I remember them. That was the so they reflect both the process of him being a, a person that was in and out of my life, and they match in terms of process in content and form matches. So that was why and how I guess I put it together. What do you have to do? I think in all of these things is you know you you embellish things you add little bits of things or you take things away and you move things around usually that's the case and that was the case definitely in doing kitsch but with sonnets for albert because the the pieces were so small anyhow i didn't have to do a lot of that all i had to do was was honestly and um, openly write the experiences down it's it's very interesting there's a lot of affection but you don't hold back the anger you speak to the other children and family members and get this kind of multifaceted point of view of this i don't know how you like to say it but of this free man full of life and you admired him a lot but the complications that come into that yeah i never disliked my father you know i never disliked him i always loved him and always was fascinated and, and captivated by him I think that is because I lived with his mother. I lived with my grandmother. I grew up with my grandmother and she loved him, you know, and even though he wasn't around, you know, she, it was her son, it was her youngest child and she loved him. So she passed on that love to me. I think that's what it was. My brother has a completely different experience because he grew up with my mom. And of course, my mom and my father didn't have the best relationship. They were pretty young when they got together. So there wasn't any sort of animosity between them, but I think it was easier for my brother because he felt left out a lot. You know, my, my father didn't really care and pay attention to him as he might've done with me because, you know, my father would come and see his mom occasionally and I was there. So I would get to see him because he was seeing his mother. My brother didn't have that experience. He wouldn't see my father at all. So there's like, you know, you talk about absence. My father was absent from my brother's life for most of his life, you know, absolutely nowhere to be found. We just didn't see him. So when I would see my dad, it was under the circumstances where he would visit his mom or visit me. And he was always, you know, funny and, and, and uh, charismatic. And I grew to love him because at that point in time, I guess I was looking for, I was looking for a father, I was looking for a father figure. And he was one of them. He was, you know, he was there. When he was there, he was quite a figure. So he became this, this loved and anticipated character. When people are absent from your life, they create more presence in your in your mind in some way. And he was definitely it was definitely the case with him. That you know, even though he wasn't around a lot, there were enough stories about him or when he would be there, the stories that he would tell would be so larger than life. So he became a, a kind of a muse, kind of a muse-like figure for me in many ways. So then when he when he passed, you know, I, I decided, gosh, I, I've got to I've got to put all this in one place and I've got to create a sort of biography of this man that endures, that lives on, you know, otherwise it'll all be forgotten. You know, I think James Salter, it was an American author, it was really influential to me. And one of the things that he said was that, um, I forgot the exact quote, but he said at some point he realized that everything in life is a dream. Only the things that are written down have any possibility of being real and everything else is a dream. So the process of writing something down and fixing it in language kind of makes my father real in a way that he wasn't in his presence. And that's art, isn't it? That's the process, that's the artistic process. That's part of the process of, of creating something, fixing it in space and time 
that we then could go back time and time again and revisit, even though that original thing isn't there, you know. Anyway, that's that's going into something else. <laughs> no, because I want to go into the, the music element because I really understand this uh, point of memorializing and putting elegy and that's a, an object in the world. And then it's so interesting that you work with the transient forms and improvisation and how that opens out your work. It's interesting the dialogue that you have. And I know sometimes it's less improvisational, but just amazingly, you might have something that's like quite destructive, like the collapse of a house. And, and then it just continues on through music. And it's like, then we see that or the anger of something. And then it's a response in the music. It's just very beautiful. So yeah. tell us how you work with your collaborator. Yeah, no, no. To be honest, it's something that I'm still, my relationship with uh, improvisational music is something that I'm still trying to theorize and trying to understand exactly why it is it works. So all I know is that in approaching a poem, it's again, it's about form and content. It's about matching process to a content. And for me, the act of writing poetry is, is kind of like a jazz soloist puts together a solo. It's related in that way because as a, as a writer, as a poet, you're always looking for a new, the new. You're looking for something, a, way, a new way of saying something. You're using language that everyone uses, but you're using it always, trying to use it in an original way always trying to have a phrase or a metaphor that is new. At least for me, that's really important in writing poetry. Less so with prose, you know, prose you can rely on, you know, particular groups of syntax and particular movements and language that, that, that are universal. But with poetry, you're pretty much on your own and your voice is sort of reflected through the process of creating something new each time. And in that process, it's similar to, to jazz. It's similar to the process of improvisational music because a soloist, is trying to express something unexpressible, trying to express something that hasn't been expressed before. And I think because of that, because they're both searching, I think they create sort of a symbiotic relationship between music, you know, improvisational music and jazz. And so really this is a collection of understanding maybe the roots of, everyone is always a mystery to, to everyone else, but you can sort of understand sometimes people who flee responsibility or it comes out of a culture where that is kind of accepted and it's unfortunately, some people flee responsibility because they're afraid of what they'll become if they're always around too, that can be another way. Mm -hmm. My father, looking at my father's life, he never settled down. He never really, he, he seemed to be afraid of being held in one place. He seemed to be really afraid of any relationships that tied him down. He was really, I think he was really interested, you know, you use the word free, a free man. He was really interested in being free and just living life to the full and being a, you know, a, a bit of a hedonist and just, you know, enjoying his life. And he, for some reason, didn't like responsibility and didn't like being pinned down in one place. And I don't know where that comes from. I, I don't know. We could analyze it socially and look at this sociopolitical aspects of slavery and, uh, you know, emasculation and male Caribbeanness going through the years. And we could sort of justify it by that. But we can't because there's a lot of Caribbean men that were not like that and were not like that. There was just something in him that couldn't maintain long, stable relationships. You know, he couldn't do it with any of his, his partners. Although he could have children with them, you know, and he had numerous children, but for some reason he couldn't settle down long enough to be a father to anybody or, or a real husband, you know. 
And uh, yeah, I don't know why that is. I mean, my brother is the only one of his children that I really know closely, that I really grew up with and understood. And we, we've spoke about it a lot. My other siblings, my father's other children, I don't really know them that well. But my brother and I spoke about this a lot. And, you know, we came to a point, I mean, I'd forgiven him many years. I forgave him since I was a child. I, I didn't, you know, I accepted this, is, this was the way he was. But my brother struggled with it. He really struggled. He really tried to reach out time and time again to my father and was rejected. And you know, But he came to a point in his life, I think only, actually he came to that point when my father died, that he finally let go of all the resentment and said, you know what, I forgive him, you know, it's okay. Although he didn't get the closure that he wanted, even in seeing him dying, he didn't get the closure, but he let it go. Uh, we forgave him for that. Because, you know, ultimately, oh gosh, I was speaking to uh, Gregory Porter, the singer, the jazz singer. I did this radio show for the BBC and I interviewed him and we spoke about it. And one of the things he said, and I don't know if it's, I forgot if it's included in the, in the program or not, but he was, was saying, you know, that you can't, don't keep resentment for your father. You know, don't, don't look at the things you didn't have with him. Look at the things he gave you, you know. Even though they're small, maybe he gave you your sense of style. Maybe he gave you, he was saying his father, Gregory's father gave him his voice, his singing voice, because his father was a great singer. He inherited that. So he was saying, you know, look at the things that you inherited from him, you know, your, your physical stature, your, you know, your hands, the, your voice, your swagger, your, your sense of style, whatever. All of these things probably came from him. So, you know, celebrate that and, and love that. So, yeah. <laughs> so he being a, a figure, um, a focus of your work, to me, it's a strange thing for somebody to be so enigmatic, who kind of consumes that thought without necessarily warranting any sort of praise or any sort of like a book, right? You know, you'd yeah. think that be someone had done something very pivotal in your life, but it's almost that vacuum of such that yeah. bring these thoughts and these questions and so, because it's such a personal account from your perspective, how do you think this translates well to other people, like in your jazz, yeah. when they're bringing their memory and their perspective into what you have, what do you hope to come from that? I think um, what is important is that when I work with musicians and we do sort of improvisational sessions, we always speak about the, the project first. We, we don't just go in and say, okay, let's just play, you know. I explain to them what I'm doing, what the poems are about, what the mood, what the feeling is for me. And I get them to think about their fathers, let's say, and their relationship with their father and to express that through whatever they play. So that's always kind of in the back of their minds and that, that works. It creates a, I don't know, a unified kind of space in which the two things, the word and the, the music coexist happily, hopefully. Fathers are interesting. I think fathers are universally, I mean, I can't say that every single one, every, everybody doesn't have a, a strange relationship or a strange relationship with their father, but many people do. And it's, it's kind of a motif in poetry. I mean, you know, we go back to Sylvia Plath and Allen Ginsberg and quite a few other poets actually that write about their relationship with their father as being pivotal, difficult, strange. There's something about that motif of, of, a, of a father, father, you know. So I think on some level, this book taps into that sort of universal difficulty around fatherhood. 
So it taps into that. It taps into the cultural sort of, you know, historical cultural things about the Caribbean and about absent fatherhood, which is still a big, an issue in the Caribbean, you know, and in black communities in general, there's still this stigma or this underlying myth, let's say, of the absent black father. And I think that this book tries to address that and shows that on one level, you know, even though someone is absent, they are very much present in your life in some way, you know. So I think it applies to that, to people. And I think also it deals at the heart of it with loss and a sense of a lack of closure. So I think that's what poets do. That's what writers do. We get, we tap into the, the base emotion. So the base emotion might be loss. It might be love. It might be lust. But we tap into that as a, that's the undercurrent that we tap into and then everything else. We sort of shape and form things around it to express that. But the base emotion in this is, is love, longing, loss, the unfulfilled, uh, which I think are universal emotions and feelings that we experience as human beings. Yes, it taps into a lot of the, as you say, through the specifics, but you speak to all of our experiences, and I think also very much in the artistic world. But speaking yeah. about the the rhythms of the language and Trinidad and Tobago, mm-hmm. they were just wonderful expressions in, in all your collections, but where you find your inspiration in the music of the language. It's changed a lot. My sort of working, the way I work with Creole has changed a lot over the years. So Kemal, Kemal Braithwaite said that language was the place that the slave was in, was enslaved the most language is the thing that is used to enslave people you know if you control language if you control the way people speak or communicate you control everything about their lives so in many ways slavery was the place where you know with the insistence of english or the insistence of any sort of imperial language upon the slave it was a form of control so i think the job of a, a post-colonial writer even now, and a lot of you know Caribbean writers do this, is to infiltrate and to subvert and to augment what so-called standard English with Creole, to interject it, to put it on a on an equal plane. Because you know, prior to Sam Selvon in the 50s, Creole often only appeared as humor in books of fiction or poetry. So there was a line, you know, there would be a line of a line of Creole either spoken by a character or in the text itself, but it was humor, it was humorous and satire. And then Selvon wrote an entire novel in Creole and it changed the game a little bit. And what it does was sort of redress the balance and it says that this this language is just as valid as your standard English. So I kind of work with these ideas and what I love is is the way you could create Creole using standard English. You don't have to misspell or you don't have to use phonetic spelling or, you know, you can just rearrange the syntax and create the feeling of Creole. Because Trinidadian Creole is is essentially a, we use sort of standard English lexicon, but sort of African, it's a blend. It's very syncretic Afro, Latin, Franco, you know, African, Latin, French, everything mixed up in the syntax in Creole, we will, you know, is a, is a long time now we forgive you album, is using kind of an African syntax. It's not using standard English syntax. Standard English syntax would be uh, a different thing, but the Creole just changes it, says the same thing, but subverts the language and makes your ear go, mm, that's different. You know, it creates a separate uh, identity. It creates a separate cultural space. 
which is just as valid. Jacob, tell us when you first came across Anthony's work and music and how it spoke to you in particular. Oh, wow. The first time I actually came across your music, Anthony, was I had heard one of your more well-known songs, which is Calling England Home. I already thought the song had a cool, very unique tone to it. You know, a yeah. gloomy London night or something like that. <laughs> and when I had heard it, I'd heard jazz before and I'd heard poetry. I, I had never heard music like that before. It kind of blurs the line between a, a strict definition you know, it's so flexible. It's got so much versatility to it. That's that's what I find most inspiration in. Thank you, Jacob. I appreciate it. Black and been here since 1949. West London jaw grind. Take it easy. The last album that came out, that was my eighth album. So there's a whole, there's a lot, there's a lot of work. You should check out some of the other albums. You might, you might like them as well. You know, in general, speaking in regards to your father, in regards to Caribbean diaspora, and then also when you were younger moving to England. Mm -hmm. There's a sense of identity that everybody's always looking for, but it seems especially difficult in a sense like that. You know, yeah. missing this perhaps connection in the mix of different cultures and languages like you're speaking. With your work, how do you feel your work is a system to address it? And the same question I asked you before, how can people hear your work and derive some sense of identity who maybe identify with your background, your history? That's a good question. And um, many years ago, I was, in, uh, was in LA. I was doing a residency at Cal State. And I tell this story because it's, it's important. It, it, it changed the way I thought about identity, um, the personal, the self. It really changed the way I thought about it. And I was in a... I was invited to go to uh, a class and to just talk about my work. It was an MA, it was an MA group that was headed by uh, Professor Lori Ramey, who was at Cal State, uh, who was a big fan of my work and who invited me to do this residency. So I went, I went into the class and very unexpectedly in the middle of the class, she said, why don't you read something first, Anthony? And I didn't have any of my books, I didn't have any of my poems and stuff. And she said, oh, just read something from your journal. I was like, but I, you know, I can't, it's like, this is just ideas and the things I'm thinking about, you know, it's not, they're not poems. And she's like, no, just choose something, just open it at random and just read something. And I did. And at the end, she said, you know, you see, I, it was very personal what I read, um, but liberating. And she said, um, the personal is the universal, you know, and that stayed with me, you know. Um, the more you are honest in your work, and the more you speak to the sort of really minute day of your own experience, may that be, you know, the way, you know, which socks you put on your foot first, whatever, the, the more intimate you get in terms of rendering yourself in the world, somehow you reach more people. You, you affect more people by being more and more personal in your world. I don't know how that works. I don't know the, the magic behind it, but it definitely is true. If you set out as a writer, and you might notice yourself as a poet, if you set out trying to write a poem that encompasses the experience of a large number of people or 
or you think you're writing an experience which a lot of people can feel, they can feel it. But if you talk about the time that someone broke your heart and you, you drank a bottle of wine and collapsed on your sofa, people immediately go, oh, wow, I feel that. I don't know why that happened. You know, the, the specificality of the detail is what makes the work real. So in terms of working true identity, I think for me as a writer, my aim has always been to be explicit and to be honest in my rendering of the self and the experience that I've had in the work. So it's very open, it's very honest. And in that way, hopefully a lot of the readers feel the honesty and feel the, what we were talking about before, the underlying emotional content of it. And they're moved or touched or affected by it in some way, you know. And it might be a, a trick that writers play, but it's effective, you know. So when you do that, the identity that you are writing from becomes kind of more real and tangible to the reader, and they get a sense of it. That's on a very, I'm talking very on a very aesthetic level in terms of writing poems. On a political level, that's a different question, sort of experiencing and expressing a Caribbean, a Caribbeanness. For me, I grew up in Trinidad. I didn't grow up in America. I didn't grow up in England in, at a point in which my identity was this contested space. You know, I think if you grew up as a Black person in, in London in the 70s and 80s, you have a different take on who you are and, and what your identity is. And it's a constant struggle to assert yourself and assert your identity because so much of it is taken away from you or challenged. But in the Caribbean, the sense of Caribbeanness and being a Trinidadian was kind of there that I could, I could be there. I knew what it meant to be a Caribbean person a lot more there, you know, through language, you know, language again, you know, we were speaking Creole, we were speaking straight Creole. So a lot of a people's identity, a country's identity or a nation's identity is formed through their arts, I think. A large, a large part of who you think you are as a nation comes through your artists, comes through books, fiction, uh, poetry, a painting. People are able to look at that or, or read it and think, yes, this is me. I feel, you know, language again, literature. And as Caribbean people, we did not have our own literature. We didn't, you know, as slaves, slaves weren't even afforded the, the benefit of education. So it was only with the abolition of slavery that we began to become writers and poets and get work published and, and reach a lot of people. You know, prior to slavery, there's very little black literature, you know, what we could call black literature. Yeah, there were slave narratives, but I'm talking about real expressive aesthetics of black of blackness and you know, literature. Doesn't come till after the abolition of slavery. So we'll be looking at late 1800s early 1900s, uh, we're looking at C.L.R. James in the 1930s, and a, a few other writers around that early period, which began, these writers began to really articulate what it meant to be Caribbean. And that is, I think, a lot of the origin of the way we see the Caribbean and the way we see who we are, and music as well of that time, Calypso. So the Caribbean identity itself, I think, by the time we enter the UK in 1948 and on the Windrush, by the time that happens, there's a sense of what Caribbeanness means and what the Caribbean identity is. And there's a point at which it changes. So we, we move from being, I mean, we were Commonwealth and you know, colonized nation 
and we move from being colonized subjects or subjects of the British Empire and we become immigrants. And there's a change there that happens in, in that time, that late 40s, where we become, because we're in the country itself, we become immigrants. And then the struggle for identity begins. You know, prior to this, we were like, oh, we, we're members of the British Commonwealth and British Empire, whatever. And there was very little, or there was a struggle to articulate what it meant to be a Caribbean because you were always subservient to somebody else. But you know, in the 1940s, and as we begin to begin to push towards independence, the struggle for a distinct Caribbeanness really begins in earnest. And I think that's what people like Sam Selvon was trying to do with Lonely Londoners to assert and to identify a Caribbean spirit and what the Caribbean really means. The problem with identity, of course, is that it's not fixed. You know, I can't put my finger on something or give you a cool sentence that is that explains what the what Caribbean person is. It's, identity is constantly shifting and moving, you know. For me, my identity was very eclectic. You know, I was growing up in Trinidad in the 70s and 80s. And I was open to the world. I was listening musically. I was listening to Jimi Hendrix. I was listening to Black Sabbath. I was listening to Rush. I was listening to a lot of Calypso music. I was listening to a lot of reggae music. I was reading Judy Bloom, or, or I was reading Keats. Or I was, you know, yeah. I was reading all sorts of stuff. Very eclectic, very eclectic experience of the world. So the identity was constantly shifting and shifting and shifting, you know. I don't know. I think a lot of them, um, I think people like Kim Albrightweight or Derek Walgett have tried their best to really pin it down. And what we come up with, what Braithwaite came up with, was that the Caribbean, uh, Caribbeanness is characterized by a relationship to migration. Migration is at the heart of the Caribbean experience, a relationship to the ocean. Braithwaite called it tidalectics, the way we negotiate language and the way we negotiate a sense of being is very much tied to the constant rotation of the sea. Yeah, and also a submerged relationship between islands, a submarine relationship in that it was, on the surface of it, it appears fragmented, but at the bottom, there are things that connect us. I think that sort of connective thing in the Caribbean, either historical, historical connections or cultural, is important. Now that you have been away from home for so long, I mean, of course, you must take trips back home, you must visit home, but how would you say your relationship with home being in this space of crafting a sense of identity that you had prior to, but also melding that with this new sense and also working with artists abroad that share that sense of maybe placelessness away from home, do you know? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of examples of that throughout literature. You know, uh, George Lamming talks about how he discovered what it really meant to be, you know, Barbadian, what it meant to be a Caribbean person only when he came to the UK, you know, because then suddenly he was this, he was, he was isolated and he was among other Caribbean, you know, he was, he was around other people from other parts of the Caribbean and they begin to speak and he began to say, okay, I'm Barbados, I'm from Barbados, you're from Jamaica, we have different identities, different languages, different cultures. And there was a sense of understanding the self through that sort of interaction. And that's important. I think, you know, the, the idea of finding out who you are in exile is, is definitely something that happens to a lot of us. 
And also, the flip side of that is uh, Stuart Hall. Stuart Hall talks about arriving in the UK for the first time and traveling on a train and looking at the landscape and thinking, I know this place. This is very familiar. And it's familiar to him because, of course, he'd read it since he was a kid in school. He'd read about the rolling fields of England and he'd read about the trees and he'd read about the landscape and he'd read about the smog he'd read about. So they became part of his consciousness. Kind of similar way that I had when I first went to New York. It felt very familiar because I had seen it in film or read it so much. And seeing a, a yellow taxi was like, wow, it's like, yeah, I know this. I know these images. So there's that. that, that those two things, I think, are important. Uh, a sort of cultural, historical understanding of a place and also the sense of being aware of the self when you're transplanted into somewhere else. And these are the, definitely the way I think about it. I also think that for me, I've become more Caribbean, more Trinidadian the longer I've stayed here, even though I've been here longer than I lived in Trinidad. I've become more Caribbean because I gained consciousness and an understanding of myself in Trinidad. And I, a lot of my sort of memories and the things that really create me, I think, as a human being and, and my work, the things that create the way that I write and the images and the ideas, I guess 80% of that comes from experiences in Trinidad growing up. You know, the way I articulate the world and use language comes from those formative experiences. And as that formative experience has become more and more in the past, I hold on to it a little bit more because I don't want to lose it. So I become more Caribbean. No, I can definitely understand that the, the separation of yourself from that aspect places emphasis upon it. And then, of course, that can function as a, a very inspiring sense to build off that and perhaps to share that, that sense yeah. of unique, that sense of uh, individuality, perhaps amidst a mass of different stories and a different backgrounds and all the much more, more powerful to be able to share that. So, yeah, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Being an academic yourself, how does that interact with the art that you make, incorporating your academic side, your knowledge into your work? Because it's, it's never lacking substance or you know, history to it. Mm -hmm. As you guys probably know, being an academic is, is equal parts form-filling and uh, sort of adhering to guidelines and adhere, ad, ad, adhering to you know, strict syllabuses. And there's a structure there that you have to work to. But luckily, <clears throat> I teach creative writing and the posts that I've had throughout the years, they've all allowed me a certain degree of freedom in what I teach and how I teach it. And it's been very exciting for me as a Caribbean writer and academic to sort of expose students to a range of writers, a range of writers from the Caribbean, let's say, or, you know, not just the Caribbean, but wherever. And because I have eclectic taste, I think I give the students a really sort of eye, hopefully, a really eye-opening experience, which is not just, it's not the experience of someone who's been taught and educated strictly in the UK and whose sort of understanding and, and parameters are very British or, or Europe or sort of Euro-American. I have a, I have a worldview of literature and uh, I'm really into the places where they overlap, you know, where so African writers overlap with you know romanticism or whatever i'm interested in those spaces so i bring that to the students and they 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 like it but also i think i work in this kind of stealth mode because as a there are very few caribbean academics there are very few caribbean academics that are teaching english literature or creative writing in the uk 
there are there's only a handful of us. So in a very subversive way, my 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 part of my role as an academic is to expand the canon, is to is to infiltrate and expand the body of work that is the Caribbean work that is within British academia. So that means things like sort of insisting that certain books are in the syllabus, making sure that the syllabus is more reflective of the sort of sociocultural makeup of the country, you know, having books there by Braithwaite and C.L.R. James and having people read more contemporary Black British poets or contemporary Black Caribbean poets, just expanding it out and making it a, infiltrating it or filling up the book list with a lot more Caribbean work. Uh, Earl Lovelace, you know, I've been teaching Earl Lovelace for a few years now and um, students had, they, they're so excited by it because he's he's very irreverent in a lot of ways in the way he uses language and, and structure. And a lot of people are like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. I didn't know you could switch tenses in the middle of a paragraph. I didn't know you could do this and make it work, you know. And that opens up the space for thinking about Creole and the, the various sort of creative devices that are embedded in Creole that you can take risk in a larger way than you can with standard English and anyway. So yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> Tell us about Bo Nagy, how you embed the different elements of your biography and your family into this Afrofuturist uh, narrative. Oh gosh, I mean, Bo Nagy was just, he's a character in the, in the novel, my first novel, The African Origins of UFOs. And it, it just came about because um, no one else had that name. You know, no one else had it. There's one of those little gaps in language that no one has. And it's just, I just like, it sounds cool. He's a character, he's an, a, he's an assassin. But yeah, you know, the Afrofuturism question, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's problematic for me. I mean, I don't see myself as an Afrofuturist writer. I see myself as someone who wrote an Afrofuturist novel. Yeah, absolutely. But I don't think Kitsch or Sonnets for Albert are Afrofuturist works. But I think people are too, there's always the desire, I think, with any ism or any sort of genre to sort of pin people down in a genre, you know, and say, well, you're an Afrofuturist. No, I'm not. I'm a writer and Afrofuturism is one of the things that I'm interested in. So who knows, my next novel might be a science fiction novel or it might not be. But if I wanted to be, I could go there. You touched on that Kitsch was a conversation with an artistic father, maybe, or someone that you conversed with through music, and that in the kind of layering might have elements in the sonnets for Albert. What did you learn from that process that maybe gave you permission to write sonnets for Albert? Or how did they in dialogue with each other? One of the things I learned from doing Kitsch was that you have to trust the material. What I mean is that what appears really small and, and insignificant sometimes are the very things which make good poetry. You know, when I was writing Kitsch, I did a lot of interviews with a lot of people who knew Kitchener. And often it was at the end of the conversation, it was at the end of the interview, after I'd switched off the tape recorder, that they said, yeah, Kitsch, Kitsch was something else. I remember, you know, I forgot, I just remembered, I remember once Kitsch came into the barber shop and had an argument with this guy and he was just leaving to go to England. I remember that. And that's all the guy would say. And that would become a whole chapter. You know, so the small little events in my father's life, when my experience with my father took on a huge significance when I was sort of grabbing for things to write about and trying to write a whole book on it. It was the small little things that at first were insignificant, like being in Malik with my brother and him. That was really important because even though it was a small moment, it was the only one of only two times that we were actually in the same space together. 
So that was important. So the small taught me that the little things are the things which you can find the most sort of heart and soul in. And also the idea of fragmentation and, and that, you know, a person's identity isn't fixed in one place, you know, to really understand who my dad was, you have to read the whole book and try to put the parts together. And still you can't really get a sense of a wholeness because there's no wholeness to anyone. Everyone is fragmented and everyone is, is moving through a process of becoming. You have this real place, an unfinished house that was built at the rupture of your parents' marriage. And it just occurred to me because you spoke about having very few things, the photographs that we should mention that were included in Sonnets for Albert, having this wonderful counterpoint. And it occurred to me, the rings, the photographs, you said very few things that were passed on, but then there are these buildings that I guess you can visit that have an empty space in them, it seemed like mm. a metaphor. <laughs> Yeah, to be honest, I haven't I haven't thought of it in that in that large sense, but now I yeah, absolutely. There are two houses I think that I talk about in Sonnet Far, but maybe more actually. Uh, but two of them stand out. One of them is the unfinished house that my father was building. It was almost like a metaphor for his life, in that he was he was very talented in terms of you know as a builder, and he started building this really beautiful wooden house in central Trinidad. And I visited him. I spent time with him there and everything. And he was yeah, he was building this this huge this house, and he could never finish it. And it was almost like he was trying to complete himself as well, you know, to get a sense of self. And of course, before it was finished, he moved on, he'd gone somewhere else. So there's that, and that's the space where he and my mom meet and have the final sort of disillusion of their relationship, their marriage, let's say. That's an interesting point. I, I'm grateful that you raised it. A man building homes or working on buildings or libraries, but always yeah. leaving them and a lot of yeah. nests. But you're a father and you're maybe would say almost the opposite, I believe. Your daughter's just graduated. Just tell us how you learn from that and how you are a father in the world. <laughs> I grew up with my grandmother. My grandmother was the most important person in my life as a child. You know, she was the one. She was the rock. And she and my aunt were the ones that really kind of were pivotal figures in my life. And then my mother as well. So those three women, between those three women, I guess they taught me a lot about love. You know, a lot about love and a lot about stability. The male figures in my life who would come in and out of my life taught me other things. They didn't teach me stability. They didn't teach me love. They taught me other things. But these three women really taught me love. So I guess at an early age, I realized that there was an importance. Relationships were important. You know, having children and the, the, the act of being a father was important and that you needed a sense of stability for that to happen. So in that way, I was different from my father. And I, I guess I wasn't as risk-taking like my father was or just a hedonistic and just going out into the world and just saying, yeah, I'm just going to do what I want and look for myself, look after myself. I didn't have that sort of arrogance that my dad had. I was quite introverted and quite shy. And that was, that was one thing. And I guess, you know, to be honest, it was meeting someone, meeting someone who was a really strong, interesting woman and having children and having a relationship that worked. You know, I was lucky. I found someone that I had a relationship with that actually would. Maybe my dad didn't have that. And you've passed on this artistic trait. I think your daughters and music, I don't know your whole family, that'll be something else. But as you think about the future and the kind of world we're leaving, the next generation and the importance of the arts, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? I understand the, the question, but the answer is, is complex because we live in a, a very strange world at the moment. It's really odd. And 
I think what created the great literatures of modernism and postmodernism, what created those amazing writers and literature, the conditions are very different now to where we are. You know, I think what created those things were a particular crisis of representation. Something needed to be articulated. They found a way of articulating it. With the advent of photography, painters all of a sudden had the struggle. They had a crisis of representation, right? They were like, okay, if the, there's a machine now that is capturing life, it's capturing an aspect of what it means to be alive. How do I then, as a painter, render the same experience? You know, because I don't have the ability to do it exactly the way a photograph does it. Photograph is capturing the reality of the thing. What do I do? And things like, I guess, impressionism and abstract expressionism and surrealism, all of these things came out of that crisis of representation. We are living in a time where language and imagery is, is saturating our lives. And it's become very difficult for, for writers to find a space in that, to find a space that is, that is fresh and that articulates what it means to be alive in a way that isn't covered by all the media that we're getting bombarded with and all the language and imagery on social media or whatever. So the task of being a writer that is really able to penetrate into the human experience has become more challenging, I think, to create really important work that really affects people on a, on a personal level. But I think that writers are standing up to that challenge and are doing it. So it's a very exciting time. The only thing I would tell people, really, young writers, is, is the personal is the universal. Think of yourself and your own experience. Go into what it means to be human, what it means to be alive, the things you experience, and write that, you know. Thank you so much, Anthony, for sharing your perspective on what it is to be human, your insights into the challenges of creativity, poetry, music, and improvisation, and for the intimacy and honesty of your work that brings us closer to our own families or absent loved ones, helping us appreciate their gifts, flaws, and move towards healing, understanding, and forgiveness. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Jacob A. Preisler, with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Jacob A. Preisler. Digital Media Coordinator is Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and was performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.